This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between having empathy and being an empath? Well, according to my guest for this part of today's show, having empathy means that our hearts go out to another person in joy or pain. But for empaths, it goes much deeper. We actually feel each other's emotions, energy, and physical symptoms in our bodies without the usual defenses that most people have. So what does this all mean? Why am I telling you this? Well, because an interesting body of research is showing that one out of five people are highly sensitive. And if you aren't an empath yourself, you may know someone who is. Let me give you a couple of famous names you probably have heard of. Albert Einstein, Carl Jung, Jim Carrey, Alanis Morissette, Scarlett Johansson, and Jewel. Now, while empaths' big hearts and amazing talent for deciphering other people's feelings often lead them to health and service professions, it can also overwhelm or damage them unless they learn the skills they need to set limits and boundaries and unless they learn to take some alone time to recharge. I'm Armin Brott. If you're an empath or a highly empathic person, or maybe you've just got one living with you right under your very own roof, you're not going to want to miss this show. We're going to start talking about empathic people and how they can get the tools to survive and thrive in this complicated, complex, and loud world we're in right after this. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Judith Orloff, who's the author of The Empath's Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. Judith, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about sensitive people. They're apparently about 20% of the population or so. How, how did you find out about that? Well, I am an empath, and I'm also a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, and so I feel so passionate about The Empath's Survival Guide because... Empaths are often misdiagnosed in the conventional health care system, empathic children and empathic adults. And so I really, you know, from personal experience and being an empath and growing up, not having any support for it, I didn't realize that I was an emotional sponge and that I could feel the energy of people and emotions all around me and take it on into my own body. I didn't have anybody explain that to me. And so it's very important for empaths and sensitive people to be educated about what's going on with their sensitive neurological system and not take on the angst of the world and yet still thrive in their sensitivities. Well, let's go back just a second. What are they being diagnosed as? What do people think that their problem is? Oh, they're being diagnosed as chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, all kinds of autoimmune diseases 
um, panic disorder, major depression, agoraphobia, because many empaths get so burned out after years of taking on the world's angst, they just don't want to leave the house anymore. And so without the proper strategies to teach them, which I'm you know, really happy to teach them in the book, then it just feels like too much. The world feels like too much. Yeah. All right. So we have to go into a little bit more of the differences between being empathic and being an empath. I think you know, everybody talks about teaching empathy, and most people would probably like to say about themselves that they can be empathic. Uh, and they try to get their t- kids to be empathic of you know mm-hmm. things like you know how does it feel how do you think it would feel to be to, to, to talk talk about feelings and stuff like that but there, you're you're saying that there's a big difference between being empathic and being an empath. Yeah, yeah, there is. An empath is somebody who senses what's going on in other people. Our hearts go out to other people in joy and in pain, but we take it on in our own bodies, which just being empathic where your heart just goes out to somebody, it's very different than actually taking it on. And there was a a study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology that recently came out that said there are two kinds of empathy. One is bad for your health, the kind where you take on other people's stuff, and one is good for your health, where you can really empathize and reach out to other people but not take their stuff on. And so in the Empath Survival Guide, I'm teaching people how to be very empathic and teach your children empathy, but not take on other people's pain, suffering, and problems. Well, how do you avoid that? I mean, if you are an empath and you're naturally inclined towards taking things on, how do you teach somebody to draw a line? Oh, this book is packed with techniques on how to do that, because as an empath, I have needed to really practice these techniques myself for my own self-preservation. And one of the techniques is learning how to set really clear limits and boundaries with people so that, especially energy vampires, there's a chapter on energy vampires, people who suck you dry. And if an empath is around an energy vampire, he or she needs to identify which type they're dealing with, which type of draining person, such as the chronic talker, um, the passive-aggressive person, the drama queen, the victim mentality, and the narcissist, the biggest of all energy vampires that I talk about in the book, and really begin to set limits and boundaries, say no. No is a complete sentence to a chronic talker. No is a complete sentence to, uh, let's say, a friend who calls you up who is going through something over and over and over again. It's not into solutions, but it's more into just going around in circles for you to have what I call the three-minute phone call. And just say, you know, I love you, you're my friend, but I can only listen, you know, more than three minutes if you want to get into solutions. But the key is when an empath sets boundaries with people is to say it with a kind, loving tone, but firm, but loving, not blaming or criticizing or angry. How do you begin to recognize whether you are an empath or you've got one at home? Oh, you have a very empathic voice. <laughs> well, don't be fooled. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do. I'm getting very soothed by your voice. Um, there's a self-assessment test in the beginning of the book and how to self-diagnose your, you as an empath. And it's possible to self-diagnose because it's really clear-cut. And there are questions such as, have I been labeled as, quote, overly sensitive all of my life? 
as a derogatory. Do I prefer replenishing myself with alone time rather than in crowds or with people? Am I sensitive to noise, smells, or excessive talking? Uh, do I prefer one-to-one interactions or small groups rather than large gatherings? Do I prefer taking my own car places so I can leave when I please? You know, do I have a hard time with intimate relationships because I often feel suffocated and don't know how to express my authentic needs? So these are all hmm. common yeses for empaths. And so what I would suggest for people is to take the empath self-assessment test in the beginning of the book and see how many you answer yes to. Because I, I think, you know, what I've been seeing with a lot of the readers is they're going, oh, my God, I'm an empath. I never realized it before. And now I know what to do, which is setting boundaries is just one of the techniques. Uh, meditation, visualizations, there's, there's so many different things hmm. that I use in my life as an empath to not take on the angst of the world. And also, you know, now it's such a highly stressful time on our earth. And the news is inundating us with stress. And so is the Internet that even non-empaths are becoming empaths because their defenses are getting beaten down. And, yeah, have you seen that? Oh, a little bit. I'm just kind of curious. I want to get back to something, though, about about the test. I haven't done the test. I'm going to have to do it, and I'll report back to people about that. But just the, the ones that you listed off there, I would probably have answered yes to most of those. But I don't feel overwhelmed with other people's stuff that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, so it, it, seemed, it, it may be, I'm not saying that I'm not an, an empathic person, but I'm, I'm probably, I'm guessing, not an empath in, in the in the way that you're describing it. So what's the difference between somebody who is fine spending time alone and maybe would w- enjoys decompressing on, on his or her own and you know that, that gets overwhelmed yeah, yeah, by too much talking and stuff like that and, 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 and somebody who's not, yeah. And noise sensitive, but you're a little different because you have really good boundaries and you have really learned how to be in the world and you probably had really healthy parenting. <laughs> you know, it's my guess. Well, we can get into that at some point. Um, no, but I, I can tell just by the way you're interacting with me is that you really have been brought up in a very positive way. And so that's a little bit different because you've learned skills unknowingly. You haven't known that the skills you've developed have really been helping you with your sensitivities. Maybe you haven't looked at it that way. That would be my guess. Um, but empaths, you know, can go to a party and can stay, let's say, two hours like myself, and then I'm done. It's a feeling of just being finished. I'm done, and if I stay any longer, it's just excess noise and input hmm. and stimulation. And so I tell all my friends that, you know, if, if you want to drive with me, which I don't usually do, because I prefer taking my own car places, is that we have to leave, you know, early. <laughs> And they know me, and so they're used to me. But I've been on this book tour for the Empath Survival Guide and giving so many people just permission to do things, permission not to go out, you know, to parties if you're tired, permission to stay home and meditate. Meditation is so wonderful for empaths. Permission to go into nature and replenish because empaths love nature. Um, but you can be, in answer to your question, a highly sensitive person. 
um, which it sounds like you are, and maybe not an empath, and there's a difference yeah. between the two. A highly sensitive person is somebody who has all the sensory components where you're noise sensitive, you don't like, you know, lots of hubbub, and you, know, you prefer really calm environments or reading or some kind of introspection, um, but you don't have the absorptive component that goes along with being an empath. So the way to look at it is there's an empathic spectrum from the highest, which would be the empath, and even the intuitive empaths who have highly developed intuition and can, let's say, communicate with animals, where children are often intuitive empaths, they have a very strong connection to nature and trees. Um, then towards lower down on the spectrum, the high, highly sensitive person mm-hmm. who gets overstimulated by a lot of sensation, noise, smell, sound, right. of talking. And then the middle of the spectrum, which is more empathic people whose heart goes out to others, but they're not highly sensitive or... Um, they're not empaths, and then the very lowest of the spectrum are narcissists, sociopaths, and psychopaths who have, if they're full-blown, have what's called an empathy deficient disorder, right. which means they're not capable of empathy as we know it, which is so important for all sensitive people to know so that you try not to get in relationships with them because they can't reciprocate your love. Right. And um, if you do have, let's say, a narcissistic boss, you just have to frame things in terms of how it will serve the person. That's the only way to get results. Talking with Judith Orloff, who's the author of The Empath Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Judith. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy. Which is great, because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. (laughs) They can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test, because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, talking with Judith Orloff, who's the author of The Empath's Survival Guide. I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, Judith, about uh, people, one, one of the symptoms possibly or one of the, the flags that might indicate that you could be an, an empath is people having told you that you were oversensitive. And I just was thinking about that. Oversensitive, when it's thrown at people in a negative way, tends, I think, to be somebody saying you're... You know, it's all about you and, and you can't take criticism, that sort of thing. And is that what you mean, or are you talking about a different type of, of oversensitivity? Yeah, I'm talking about a different type. I'm talking about if you go to the, let's say you go with your children to the mall and your child is an empath and the child says, oh, it's too noisy in here. There are too many people. I want to go home. And you say to that child, oh, you're just overly sensitive meaning you put them down for not respecting their sensitivities okay. that they have. Okay. If they, yeah, they legitimately feel that way, you see. And right. so the, the bummer about being called that is that it makes you feel like there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And so that empath child is going to feel pretty terrible about him or herself the rest of the day and the rest mm-hmm. of their life if they keep hearing it. 
So what are the challenges that parents of empaths may have? Of empath children? Yeah. Uh, empath children are very special children. They're sensitive, they're open, and they have different kinds of needs. Uh, for instance, you don't want to really book an empath child with lots of play dates. You know, one day they don't do well with a lot of activity. They would rather get together with one friend and go, go skateboard or something or do something, climb a tree or whatever they want to do. But most likely they're not going to go to a video arcade because it's too noisy and chaotic for a, a sensitive child. They're going to want to go walk in the forest. They're going to want to read. They're going to want to have solitary activities more so than other children. They're probably not going to want to join sports teams because it's too much uh, kind of competition and just noise and hubbub. But there's a chapter in the book on raising empathic children. And I think this is so important because these will be the leaders of our world. And I feel very strongly we need to have empathic leaders who are strong and sensitive and just not blown over by every emotion that comes to you because you're taking it on. And so when you have a strong and sensitive man or woman, that starts in childhood, ideally. But it isn't practically what's happening. I mean, what I'm seeing and people who are loving the book are saying, I'm, you know, 45 years old or I'm 53 years old and I just found out I was an empath and I've been suffering all my life and, you know, where has this information been, basically. So how do you... How do you start to talk to your kids about this, about to give them give them some of the tools to withdraw from situations and, and scenarios where they're not feeling comfortable, but to enable them to thrive everywhere else? Yeah, well, you take seriously what they say. If your child comes home and says, I don't feel good about this kid. I don't like being around them. You know, instead of saying, oh, you don't even know that child, you know, to say, tell me about it. What are you feeling? And, you know, really delve into what the child's feeling, not making too big a deal out of it. You don't want to overemphasize it, but just finding out what they're feeling and saying, you know, he yells all the time. He's not nice to his sister, you know, or something like that, which is very hard for an empath child to see a, somebody, some, another child or an adult yelling. Yelling is very painful to empath children. It just hurts, and adults. And so empath children... It's not good to yell at them, um, which, you know, probably would be true for everyone, but much more so for children because they're so sensitive. And then, you know, when they say, I have this intuition about something, you go, oh, honey, tell me what it is. Um, And so you really encourage them. And there's a type of empath called a dream empath that I talk about in the book. And I'm one of those. I've always, since I've been a little girl, remember my dreams and record them and live by them. I have guidance from my dreams. And there are many children who love their dreams. And so I suggest to parents having dream circles in the you know, breakfast. They're just saying, all right, let's talk about our dreams tonight or today. What did you dream last night? And so you just make it all okay. And you make it okay that they don't have to socialize with a big group if you're having people over if they hide under the stairway and just want to observe. That's mm-hmm. okay. You don't have to force them to come out. They're dealing with it in the way right. they deal with it. You know, one of the, the big challenges with parents or any kind of relationship probably is a, a conflict between styles or between temperaments. And 
And if you if you're a kind of a loud, boisterous, outgoing person as a parent, you may have a difficult time coping with a child who's like this. And I mean, it's it's easy in one hand to say, well, you know, stop doing that, or or ask questions, or be empathetic. But how do you avoid falling into your natural, you know, natural situation or natural behavior, which would be to just say, stop that. Well, you, you just get a thicker skin. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, the, you know, the parent needs to know that's destructive to the child. And it, it depends what the parent's goal is. If the parent is a narcissist and could care less what his or her child needs, then they'll just stay being boisterous and loud and doing their thing. But, it, you know, I look at raising children as a sacred responsibility, and the children are our te- spiritual teachers. And so the challenge of that kind of person would be to get beyond themselves, tune into their hearts, and try and compromise and tune into the needs of their child, not just their own needs, and realize that a boisterous voice is not pleasant to some children. And sure, they don't have to change that. But if they want their child to be comfortable and happy and love their children, I strongly suggest they take a look at themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you said that children are spiritual teachers. What do you mean by that? It's kind of a phrase that comes up from time to time, and I don't think I completely understand it. I'm sorry, what phrase is that? That children are spiritual teachers. Yes. Well, I look at being a parent as a sacred goal of guardianship. If you, if you have a child, you're bringing a new life into the world. And if you have an empath child, you want to support that child in who that child is. That's why I wrote this chapter to give empath parents, maybe you don't understand empath children, a guidelines of what to do with them and how to, how to work with them. But children are our teachers. Just as relationships are our teachers, they shine a light on our dark spots. And so they encourage us to grow, be better people, be more empathic people, more patient people. You know, whatever lessons they're teaching you, I hope you can embrace them as a parent. As being a parent is a very conscious decision, and I work with my empath patients who want to be parents who are not yet, you know, really getting clear on if they can handle it. Because for an empath parent, it's hard enough for non-empath parents if you have a mate, if you you're lucky enough to have a nanny, but let's say you don't, and let's say you're an empath, you know, all of that noise and constant activity, you know, is quite stressful for empaths. So, you know, I, I work with my patients in my private practice to get clear on whether or not having their own children is the answer, or maybe mentoring might be better, or, you know, there are other options on how to be with children than having your own, because it's a big decision, but if you do have them, they will teach you all kinds of things. And I hope the loving, empathic parents out there can be sensitive to learning patience, to learning a new way of being with a child. You know, maybe it's not your way, but it's a child's way. So it's a, a teaching of acceptance. It's a teaching of learning how another being does things so you can support their growth. And it mm-hmm. goes on and on, really. It's quite yeah. a spiritual experience. We only have just a couple seconds left, but what's the, the one message that you would give to a child who is an empath about making it in the world? Just a couple seconds. You're beautiful. You're sensitive. You're powerful. Don't let anyone tell you you're not. And learn to ground yourself 
you're using some of the strategies in the book right. and um, go out and you know make the world your own you know go out and just follow your dreams you're teaching a workshop at, at Esalen, July 28th to 30th. And where can people find out about that? At my website, drjudithorloff.com. Okay. Been talking to Judith Orloff, who's the author of, uh, among other books, The Empath Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People. Um, and again, the website is drjudithorloff.com, two Fs at the end of Orloff and doctors, DR. Judith, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the US never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. And it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment, this one dealing with treating boys and girls differently. Do we really need to? Dear Mr. Dad, my husband and I have two-year-old twins, a girl and a boy, and we both love spending time with them. But I've noticed that he and I have very different styles in several ways. We do different activities with the kids. And I've also noticed that I do a better job of treating the kids the same while he treats our son very differently than our daughter. What's the best way to play with a toddler? And isn't it better to play with the two kids in exactly the same way? The short answers to your questions are A, there's no such thing as a best way or a right way to play with children, and B, it's impossible to treat two children in identical ways, whether they're the same sex or not. To start with, moms and dads typically have very different play styles, with dads leaning toward louder physical activities, moms towards quieter, less physical ones. Neither approach is better than the other. For their first few years of life, kids learn almost everything about the world through play. And they're learning different but equally valuable lessons from each of you. So the best approach is for your kids to have both. Moms and dads differ in other ways as well. For example, dads generally encourage independence, allowing their children to take more risks and learn from the consequences. Moms tend to be more cautious and protective and encourage their children to take fewer risks perhaps in an effort to spare them the pain that comes with failure. Of course, not all moms and dads fall into these patterns, but most do. Again, the best approach is both. Here's how this might play out. Imagine that you're in a park and your kids are climbing a jungle gym. You may find yourself standing closer to the bottom, ready to catch a falling child, warning them to be careful and suggesting that they've gone high enough. Your husband will most likely be standing a bit further away, encouraging the kids to climb higher. Or if you're walking with your kids and one of them falls, your husband will probably wait a few seconds longer than you do before helping. As you notice, dads and moms often don't treat their sons and daughters the same way, with moms being more egalitarian and dads more traditional. Dads tend to be more physical with and encourage independence in boys than girls, perhaps as a way to toughen boys up. Dads respond more quickly to fussy or crying girls than to boys and will pick up a daughter who's fallen sooner than a son. Interestingly, when it comes to gender roles, moms and dads are equally likely to support stereotypes. 
They're perfectly fine about dressing a girl in pink or blue, wanting to give her the option to be anything she wants to be. But the same parents would balk at putting their son in pink. Similarly, while they might encourage a girl to play with trucks and other boy toys, they're less likely to encourage a boy to play with dolls, unless they're superheroes or soldiers. While it might seem like a nice idea to treat your son and daughter the same way, that's never going to happen. The best you can do is give them both the same options and support the choices they make. A few years ago, I interviewed a mother of boy-girl twins who, like you, tried very hard to create a gender-neutral environment at home. So she was very surprised that her daughter often wrapped up toy trucks, gave them bottles, and rocked them to sleep. And she was equally surprised that her son tore the heads off the Barbie dolls and used the legs as guns. If you've got a question for us or a comment or a suggestion or anything else, you can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with a whole new Positive Parenting show for you. Hey, but don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, there he is. How's it going? I'm having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand or what? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. Are you okay? I'm having a stroke. Your face looks weird, too. I'm having a stroke. Are you having a seizure or something? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. I'm having a stroke. You just need to know the sudden signs. Look for FAST, F-A-S-T, F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, or S, speech difficulty, then T, time. Time to call 911 immediately because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment, and that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. Know the sudden signs, face, arm, speech, time. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. What motivates successful people to get things done? Maybe you assume their motivation is fueled by imagining a future reward for their efforts, including the joyful feeling of pride. However, a marvel of evolution is that humans are not solely motivated by positive emotions. They're also motivated and even driven to achieve by negative emotions, too. That's a primary, powerful, and often misunderstood source of motivation. Here's how that works. Essentially, people are motivated to do something based on their desire to turn on positive emotions or to turn off negative emotions. It's just a fundamental principle about how we function emotionally. Labeling emotions as positive or negative actually has little to do with their value, but instead involves how they motivate us through the ways they make us feel. Negative emotions like distress, fear, anger, disgust, and shame motivate us to do something to avoid experiencing them, or they urge us to behave in ways that will relieve their effects. 
There's no doubt that negative emotions, along with positive ones, significantly influence our lives by silently directing the decisions we make and motivating us to get things done. We'll start talking about the science of motivation when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Chris, you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2. There's your comic book collection, the race car bed. I'm young at heart, but I put money into my 401k every paycheck. I'm taking control over my financial life, and that feels pretty grown-up to me. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Are those footy pajamas? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt. My guest for this part of today's show is Mary Lamia, who's the author of What Motivates Getting Things Done, Procrastination, Emotions, and Success. Mary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming back. It's been quite a while. Yes, thanks for having me on. All right, let's talk about procrastination because you you have a a nicer spin on it than I think most people give the word. People tendency to have a tendency to think of procrastination as something bad, and you yes, talk about a, two different types of procrastination and how one of them. I, I was really very intrigued by that. Of course, I have a tendency to put everything I read into. Well, how does that affect me, and how am I reflected in this? But you know, t- talk about the two different types and and how they're they're different. And well, and, actually, there's I I know two primary ways of getting things done, and only one of them has to do with delay. So there are people who I call deadline-driven, and and those are are people who are motivated by emotions that are activated when a deadline's imminent. I mean, they they are deadline-driven. They need a deadline in order to uh, become activated. And the other people I call task-driven, and those are people, and I'm one of them, who become activated by their emotions every time they see something that has to get done. They feel compelled to get things done right away. If they see something out of place, they put it in place, they don't delay, they sort of get things off their plate because not having something done bothers them. Things left undone, for the most part, do not bother procrastinators. They are able to delay action until um, a deadline motivates them to do all those other things they haven't done or do the thing they have to do at that deadline. Usually when a deadline is in sight, people who generally procrastinate find all kinds of other things to do that they haven't done and get all of those things done right then, like clean up their house or do all the dishes. And then they get to that final task, the big task they have to complete at the deadline. Well, you know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of of a conversation that I had years and years ago with somebody about, I think it was ADD, and somebody that I was interviewing. And we came to the conclusion that it's really not a problem if it doesn't interfere with your life. And so... I guess where where procrastination becomes a problem is that whether if you're a a deadline driven person and you put off doing stuff and you get everything done, 
I think I, I kind of fall into that category. I wait until the last possible minute, but I rarely, rarely ever blow a deadline. But it's when you don't, though. That's the problem, when procrastination becomes an issue, right? It's when you, when you put it off and put it off and put it off and then don't do it. When you miss a deadline. Well, yeah. I studied a number of highly successful people, and uh, I asked two major questions. Oh, well, I asked these questions of everybody and uh, to determine sort of what category they're in. And one would be the deadline-driven, and then there's the task-driven, and then there are those people who fail. They're not failures, but they are people who fail to meet a deadline. So the questions I always ask are, do you ever miss a deadline? Highly successful people across the board claim they rarely, if ever, miss a deadline. The second question is, does your work reflect your best efforts? People who tend to delay, who are very successful, always say yes. And people who are task-driven, who are successful, say yes. However, the people who fail, sometimes people get things done ahead of time, but their work does not reflect their best efforts. They just get something done to get it done. They may not procrastinate. They may not delay. But they have to get things off their plate, but they don't do a good job. And they end up failing, you know, in spite of the fact that they got something done. And then there are those people who wait and wait and wait, and then they miss a deadline, and they may never get something done, or they get it done late. And I don't call those people procrastinators, because they really aren't. Actually, there are other emotional issues that interfere with them getting something completed. And we often blame it on procrastination, when in fact, there's something else going on. There could be, you know, depression or anxiety or other other emotional issues and to call it procrastination points i think to the wrong thing to take care of no it sounds like it yeah i i'm this is interesting because i i it brings up a an ongoing series of battles that i have with my 14 year old about this because she is somebody who will put stuff off until the very end and then often doesn't do it and then it gets worse for her because it, it gets she's overwhelmed by the sheer amount of stuff that she has to catch up on that she just throws up her hands and says, I can't do anything. And it just gets to be really unpleasant. And at some while we're having conversations about this, she says, well, you know, you're, you're no one to talk about getting things done sooner because you always wait until three o'clock in the morning the night before something's due. And, and <laughs> saying, well, but I get it done and you're not getting it done. So what, right. what that's is, the determining factor is yeah. do you ever miss a deadline? And if you don't miss a deadline and you still get it done, you're highly effective as someone who uses delay. So how do how do you talk to somebody who's not that effective, who who is not and I, I'm trying to stay far, far away from the word fail because I think it's not a it's not a failure. It's, as you said, it's, there's something else that's going on there. But how do we figure out what's going on there? Well, the first thing I try to uh, help people with is, is to help them understand emotions. Because, I mean, really that's what my book is all about. It, it, it's a book about emotions and how emotions are intrinsic to all human motivation. Everything uh, we do, everything is motivated at some level by our emotional life. We may not be conscious of it at the time, but we're motivated by our emotions. 
So we're not just motivated by positive emotion. We're also motivated by negative emotions. We're either, you know, maybe another way to put it is like labeling emotions as positive or negative is, is doesn't say anything about their value really. Um, instead, it involves how they motivate us through the way they make us feel. So I try to teach people how their emotions may motivate them through the way they make them feel. And some parents will say, well, I want my child to have pride in her work and and pride about doing something and getting things done. And so shouldn't the anticipation of pride motivate her? Well, you know, that's logical, but that's not always true. Uh, pride does motivate us, or anticipating pride, the excitement and enjoyment of having pride certainly pushes us forward. And the reason it does is because of our warehouse of emotional memories. We have all these emotion, emotional memories built up from early, early childhood that uh, determine pretty much who we are. And so even even the unconscious memory we have of our of the joy in our parents face you know their eyes when we first walked and when we accomplished things i mean that's where the sense of pride comes from all those memories of when other people were proud of us or experienced joy yeah and we experienced joy in return but that doesn't work for everybody some people are motivated more by their negative emotions, and those include things like distress or fear or shame or even disgust. Some people, for example, don't do their dishes because they feel proud that their kitchen is clean. They do their dishes because they feel disgust when they walk into the kitchen. So they're motivated yeah. to wash them. So, so it doesn't really matter, I guess, at that point. I mean, if if your if your goal is to have a sanitary kitchen that looks pretty good, does it make any difference how you get there? Exactly, positive and negative emotions. Um, they one is not more valued than the other, but they both motivate us. So, what are the things that what what motivates kids? One is the anticipation of enjoyment or joy, those positive emotions that you get from pride. But other things motivate them, too. Fear and distress, when combined together, produce anxiety. That's where anxiety comes from. The basic emotions in anxiety are fear and distress. So those emotions can motivate us. Anxiety about the possibility of uh, getting a bad grade. Well, what if a kid doesn't have anxiety about getting a bad grade? That's not going to motivate them. Wait, Mary, let me let me stop you for just a second. Got to take a quick break. Talking to Mary Lamia, who's the author of What Motivates Getting Things Done, Procrastination, Emotions, and Success. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we keep talking to Mary about exactly this. Hi, this is John Andrasik of Five for Fighting, here for RAD, the entertainment industry's voice for road safety. You know, style is a personal thing, and your lifestyle is your business. But if you take it on the road, it becomes everybody's business. So please, plan ahead, designate before you celebrate. Friends, 
Don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Mary Lamia, who is the author of What Motivates Getting Things Done, Procrastination, Emotions, and Success. And I want you to continue on that idea about using these negative emotions and anxiety and stress to figure out what for, for what's going on and, and how to help the kids that, we're, that we want to help. And I guess what I was trying to explain was how negative emotions, especially when they combine with one another, produce certain effects. Um, I mentioned uh, fear and distress produce anxiety, but when fear and distress and shame commingle with one another, we get shame anxiety, and that is uh, being afraid of the possibility of experiencing shame. And usually, in a cognitive sense, that comes out as a fear of failure. And a lot of kids have a fear of failure. Adults have a fear of failure. Certainly athletes have it. And a fear of failure is highly, highly motivating. But it's not always negative emotions that combine with each other. Sometimes like fear and distress and excitement can combine. And what do you get there? You get sort of an elation with fear and anxious excitement. You get that on a roller coaster ride. You get that in the high of when you're getting something done at the last minute and you're you're sort of on top of your game and you're pushing forward. So I teach people about their emotions and how to use them, better use them, to activate themselves. Um, so, for example, uh, if somebody isn't completing their work, are they more likely to complete it or complete some of it if they challenge themselves to a 30-minute increment? So you set a timer for 30 minutes and see how much you can get done, and then it, and then it's over. And then you do it again for 30 minutes. Sometimes, especially if someone's deadline-driven, um, it, it's important to, to give them deadlines, but give them deadlines in little chunks. Uh, another way to do it is is to um, sort of take a look. Well, you know, the first thing is you have to determine whether you're driven by deadlines or you're just driven by tasks. And, and sometimes that's not clear. You know, someone could look like they are a procrastinator when really they're not. They're really task-driven, but other emotional issues are, are interfering. So the first thing you have to do is figure out when you're at the top of your game. You know, do you do things one at a time and as they come up, and is that better for you, or is it better to be uh, at the last minute? So you learn about yourself by observing yourself and kind of exploring your emotional responses and your reactions that are activated, you know, when the emotions are activated. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you deal with this though with kids and with adults? We're more likely to have projects and things that have that are spread out, and we have other things going on in our life. But kids who are in school, they just get so much dumped on them all at the same time that in, in many it's not like they have 
a way of, of spreading things out. I mean, now kids these days, everybody's got a timer and a, you know, and, and a, a, a calendar, and they're supposed to be arranging things and prioritizing things. But there's just this constant flow of stuff that has to be done always. I agree. And, and you know what? There are some kids who protest because they don't see the logic of it. Right. That's it. Yes. How is this going to benefit me? Right. And so, and so you have a conversation with them about how they're right, because often they are. You know, is, is doing five pages of math uh, better than just doing one page or doing one page in school? Well, that remains to be seen. But some kids are correct that there's a lot of busy work, and, and they, they can't get behind it. You know, just the idea of getting a good grade, and maybe they think to themselves, well, why do I just want more stress? Because it's a series of grades I have to get. And then I go to college and I have to get more good grades. So they just can't see the benefit in it. So what do you do then? You have a lot of discussions. And and you listen to what they have to say about it. And sometimes when a, a child can air her grievances, it helps them become more motivated to get it done. But you are so. How, how would that go, though? How how would the conversation go? Well, the conversation would go something like, um, "Well, what do you think about all this work you have to get done, and how do you understand not doing it? Did you not feel like it, or was there something else going on? Try to explain to me so I could better understand." And they'll tell you, "Well, it's a waste of time," and you tell them, "Well, they're probably correct." But <laughs> what else? Yeah. And then they'll tell you the what else. I'd rather, I'd rather be doing this or I'd rather be socializing or I'm really good at helping my friends with their problems and, that, and they're more important to me than doing this page of math. And you commend them for their values. But then you will keep asking them questions about why it might be good to get it done. And, and to just respect their opinion and value their opinion. But you have to have a lot of those conversations. And then you ask if there's any way in which you could help. Or how could you make it easier? Or if this is what, what's important so that they could succeed in life somehow, uh, how could you help them do that? Now, do you think that there's such a thing as, as negative help? I mean, we want to have the kids develop skills to be able to meet their own deadlines and take care of things on their own, right? But if you negotiate with the child's teacher to extend a deadline or if you end up doing the thing way too many parents do, which is you kind of jump in and do part of the project for them, what, what's the message there? Well, uh, I don't think anyone should take seriously their thoughts of extending a deadline or withdrawing from a project if they could do it. Usually people who extend a deadline, uh, um, people who tend to procrastinate, who ask for deadline extensions, generally don't get things done necessarily, especially if it's habitual. It's not a good idea because then you procrastinate until that deadline, and then sometimes you could fail to meet that deadline as well. In the same way, people who do things ahead of time have their own set of fantasies 
they they usually have fantasies that um, have have to do with uh, uh, sort of fantasies of escape, like, well, if I break my leg or if I get sick, I won't have to do this thing. <laughs> so yeah. I try to teach people in the book to let go of those fantasies, let go of deadline extension fantasies, let let go of fantasies of escape. It's just your mind's way of trying to get out of the circumstance you're in. It's not going to work. Get it done. Um, so, so should you um, habitually make an effort to get an extension for a child? No. It's, I don't think it's in their best interest. No, I don't think so either. I'm just kind of, I, but I, I, it's a it's a tool I think that a lot of people use is to, you know, in in the in our efforts to help our children, we will lean towards something like that. Well, let's get you some more time. One of the reasons why uh, people often um, get tutors for their children, and not everybody can afford a tutor, and that's un- you know makes life very unfair, is so that their their child will get things done because having somebody sit down with you sometimes helps. I would ask a child if it would help having me sit with them, or it, would it help having me do something with them. Mm-hmm. Or uh, would it help to listen to music? Some, you know, music doesn't necessarily interfere with a child getting her work done. Sometimes it it helps focus their attention. I would I would go through all the ways that it would help. You know, what would help, and have the child come up with some of those answers too. Right. Exactly. But what happens is that we become addicted to the enjoyment of success. And what you want to to do is to trigger that joy and enjoyment and excitement in a child so that they can reach for it. But you have to have a lot of emotional memories of that kind of joy before you before it becomes a habit. If you have memories of shame from failing something, and that's what's on top. That's what you're going to remember. And often people give up because of those emotional memories. Mary Lemia is the author of What Motivates Getting Things Done? Procrastination, Emotions, and Success. Read it now. Don't procrastinate. Mary, thanks so much. Thank you, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.